the Sports Career Podcast, episode 299. How can content creation develop the future of women's rugby? Sports Achiever and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Crib Podcast. I'm your host Ed Bowers. Now I've got some big news to share with you first and this is really really important. I want to let you know that education2sport.com which is my sports career blog will be closing but the podcast is not, can I say, not going away. I've got some really exciting news to share with you that I'm partnering with actually a podcast special guest, Jesse Engelhart, where we've teamed up together to create the Sports Career Academy. And if you want more information about that, go to www.sportscareeracademy.com. We are about to launch an exciting community which is all about helping you discover how to turn your passion into a profession, understand how to get your foot in the door in the sports industry, but most importantly, pursue a career in the sports industry that excites you and helps you earn a living. So if you want more information again about that, go to www.sportscareeracademy.com. But as I said, the show will still go on. And as always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest with regards to content creation and if you want to pursue a career in the rugby industry. I hope today's episode can be useful to you with regards to your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's podcast special guest is Victoria Rush. Victoria is a philanthropist, and a filmmaker focusing on women's sport. Her current role is senior producer at Virgin Media O2, but she's most known for being the director of No Women, No Try, which is a women's rugby documentary on Amazon Prime. Now this documentary is all about really exploring gender equality in the sport, but most importantly, providing a space where women can thrive in rugby. So they have equal access to men. And for that reason, this is what I call being a game changer with regards to improving the sports industry through the power of content creation. So for that reason, it's such a pleasure to have Victoria as a podcast special guest. And that's when today's episode, Victoria will share her sports career journey and explain to you how the power of content creation can professionalize women's rugby to another level on and off the pitch. Victoria, it's such a joy to have you on the podcast show. Please you share to the listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Well, that's a really big question, isn't it? To open with. Um, my sports career journey, I guess, really, it's probably most prominently been the last couple of years. Um, I first started working sport related when I joined O2. Uh, they sponsor England Rugby and I worked on all their social content for um for their platforms and that was probably the most hands-on paid sport work 
I'd ever done. And then in the last actually couple of years, I've been developing the film No Woman No Try, which will be uh, certainly probably the most standout significant point anyway. Awesome. I just want to go back in time just for the listeners listening in. Did you have like an academic journey or was when you did work at O2, was it like, I just want to jump into the sports industry that end just to give the listeners a bit of background that side of things yeah I have a a much broader marketing background I did um, marketing and advertising at university I spent 10 years working in marketing in-house and agencies so I had a lot of that whether it was production flyers materials social media uh, you name it design a lot you know Um, so I did a lot of that first Um, and then yeah exactly as you say one day I just rugby's been such a big part of my life I wanted to try and find a way to do them both at the same time which is much easier said than done and this position came up oh too if you know rugby if you know England rugby you know they sponsored them so uh it, it felt like a natural fit and I um openly I've said this many times I went into the interview saying and it was all a video video production based interview which is something I really knew I wanted to do more of rather than a broader marketing role I said look I know nothing about music you've got all the O2 academies the O2 you know everything on that side of things but rugby I can tell you everything about and certainly women's rugby in the progression of the women's game so that really was I guess the the first moment um that that really all started I had begun the progress the process of no woman, no try like a month before that. So they probably very coincidentally grew together in that respect. Um, but yeah, I, I waited until I had some experience and brought together passion and work at the same time, which I definitely think um, I'm much better at what I do when I uh, when I care about it a little bit more. Absolutely. I now want to just touch on the rugby. We'll touch on the marketing side in general, because there's probably some key marketers you want to break into like the marketing industry from an agency standpoint. But I want to talk about your rugby journey. Do you still play now? I do, yes. I'm a little bit too injured to actually play, but yes. So which club, out of interest? I'm just curious. I'm at Richmond Rugby Club in London. Okay, so I, this is like a long time ago, but I used to be part of London Irish Academy. So Richmond, okay, fam. London yeah. Welsh, um, all those little clubs. Um, London Scottish. Scottish yeah. yeah, so we're on the same wavelength. Like, Could you just share that journey? Because let's be honest, in the men's game in particular, 1997 up to 2000, it was very amateur. Yes, they're getting paid, but not to where it is now. Could you just paint the picture of like women's rugby? Because I'll be honest, I was playing with girls about, yeah, nearly 20 years ago, but the pathway was non-existent. So I'm just curious of, we'll talk about no women, no try, but with regards to your journey, how's that pathway been from like a journey perspective? I guess for the women's game, it's probably slightly different for everybody, but there's a kind of typical Mm -hmm. story that I didn't know women played rugby until I was 19. Not really. Um, I watched the England men's team on the TV with my dad. Dad shouted at the TV. I shouted at the TV. I kind of fell in love with it because he loved it. And um, that was really my first introduction to rugby. Even men's premiership rugby was hard to find back then as well. Uh, and I, when I went to university, I played hockey. I played hockey all the way through school. Like netball, rounders, kind of the, the main sports we all played. Um, I'd never had the opportunity really to play football or rugby. Um, certainly never played cricket. When I got to university in my first year, I remember just seeing a women's team play. I was like, how are they already playing? How do they know how to do that when I've never, I've never had access to that? So the pathway is really different, like you say. And most of the people that played probably already had families that played. So maybe their brothers 
went to their local clubs they went to or their dad went down to the local clubs they went to and that's how they started playing from a young age um it rarely was that girls were taught it at school and um so I didn't find it until I was 19 went to trials in my second year and never played another sport again so that's how I found rugby wow. yeah yeah and I, I remember the moment very clearly at trials we we're in a sports hall I think probably playing touch I just remember catching the ball and I was like oh okay yeah, yeah this is where I'm supposed to be and that was kind of it really um I didn't I didn't overthink it in any way I just stopped playing everything else and started playing rugby um joined my first club I think towards the end of that first season whilst I was just kind of getting the hang of what was going on that was up in Leeds uh, West Park in Leeds so I joined there for I must have been three or four years then when I moved to London a friend of mine from Leeds had gone to Richmond so I went as well and that I think was probably realistically is the pathway for most women and girls if you live in a certain area you find the local club that maybe matches the standard you want to play and was in within reaching distance around work and things slightly different at prem level to some extent some players might now get contracts to go to places or but again I think it's not a professional league players are paid but some of them could be paid a thousand pounds a year I don't think that counts as actually being a professional player that doesn't cover your petrol to and from games and training so um a lot of them still work it around their schedules and, and what they can do there are some more fortunate like Shauna Brown who plays for England and for Harlequins is paid enough to be a professional athlete between the two um, and the other work she does so it's slowly happening in the women's game but my um, generalised understanding of it is that most people will play for clubs based on where they need to live for work and life and it will evolve around them that way rather than the other way. So it's very much the amateur game that like you get for, for the men's amateur game anyway. Do you think the narrative's changing with regards to what you've just said? Like, for example, I'll go back to this girl I play with, Alice, who's just had natural talent at London Irish. I'll never forget because she was mixing with us and it was awesome, but I couldn't visualise... Because there was no, at the time, women's team or girls' team at London Irish at Sunbury. So we're talking quite close to Richmond. And I'm just, bear in mind, we are talking 20 years ago. So from a development perspective, are things changing from a grassroots standpoint? Because finally, when I was at school connecting, like, well, everything was like, if you're a girl, you played netball, hockey, boy, cricket, um, did do hockey as well. But it's almost like with your gender, you're categorised to a certain sport. Hopefully, I hope that's changing now. I'm just curious from your journey side of things. Um, I hope so. So I know that in schools that they've stopped doing rounders and they've started doing cricket for girls because there's a genuine pathway for, in cricket um, and there isn't in rounders. So um, I guess some of that is changing. There's a, a visible and clear pathway for female athletes coming through now. I, I never saw that. I never saw it as an option for me. I'm not saying I would have been good enough either, but you know there, there really wasn't one but uh, uh within the last sort of week or so England rugby have announced a 220 million pound investment into the women's game over the next 10 years which is obviously an enormous amount of money to go into women's sport um and that is part of their strategy to turn it into a fully professional women's rugby league um there isn't anything like that in the world you know, so that that in itself will create a pathway for people, for girls to know it's an option for them if they commit themselves when they're younger, like you know, like, like lads can, whether it's football or rugby or cricket, that these these young girls can commit to rugby if they want to, um, and have a very clear 
opportunity to um to play professional rugby when they're older if, if you're good enough and that I think in itself is a pathway um the clubs below those levels will inherently end up investing more the clubs in the premiership will invest more they'll they'll take up more camps they'll bring in more girls to train um they'll make they'll make the squads bigger um they'll pay more people you know so in itself i think that's an incredible progress um and it's 10 years which is a really long time it's not just here's one or two years worth of investment if it doesn't work oh well we're committing to 10 years worth of investment to make sure this works and um, I think some other countries around the world are going to have to step up really fast to make sure that England don't run away with uh, women's rugby for the next maybe 20, 30 years. Also, from a policy standpoint, it gives enough time to see all these new ideas put into place with a bit of review within that 10 years. Yeah. I think that's the reason for 10 years. It's not just to spread it. It's to evaluate what worked and didn't work with the growth. And finally, before we talk about your marketing journey, because I know a lot of listeners will be interested from a rugby standpoint, how exciting was it to have a separate Six Nations within the men and women's game for the first time? Because for me, that was great to have like separate identity than the Six Nations being the same period and merged together. I hope that makes sense. So uh, for me, it was nice to have like separate marketing for the women's Six Nation as a fan than yeah. it being like, should we say piggybacked, which has been last you know few years beforehand. So I'm just, I love your thoughts on that. I think in every way it's better. There have been time periods where they maybe needed to be at the same place at the same time to help bring some awareness. And lots of people's opinions, I think, differ on that. But I think right now, where the game is, especially in England, having its own separate window is only a good thing. Um, Shauna says it in No Woman, No Try. The journalists can't write about a men's game or five men's games, five women's games, five men's under-20s games in one weekend, you cannot write that much about that many games. So they end up only writing about what they deem to be the best games or the most high-profile games, and everything else gets dropped to the wayside. So having a separate window where you now have, what, three months of consistent rugby rather than six to eight weeks of really intense rugby, it means the journalists continue to carry... The conversation and the, the hype and the buzz from the men's tournament rolls into the women's tournament and then as we've seen we've got the men's under 20s going on essentially now so that that buzz continues to roll through and it creates more interest in the premiership somebody might watch I would always go back to Shauna but somebody might watch um I don't know Helena Rowland and she plays for Loughborough they might watch her play for England they go okay actually I'm going to go and watch her play for Loughborough now because that's I've, I've heard that's live streamed and that progress, you see one player here, you might then go and watch them play club and that will grow the club game. So I just think it's um, a fantastic opportunity. And now the game has progressed enough for it to be its own product in that respect. And it for it for it to be shown on, on live streams and on TV, which is what we've been we've been begging for for years. Broadcast free to air TV that everyone can access. Um and I don't think it's the case across all the nations that it's available that readily available but it certainly is here and that in itself is progress which I think is fantastic. Absolutely and thank you Sharon for that point from a journalist standpoint I haven't heard that point before and I think that makes total sense even if I went to a game I had to write two games instead of one of course you're not going to get the quality of both pieces of work when you watch two games so I love that point and I want to go back to the marketing agency from your 10 years experience because people who work in this space would you mind just sharing the, the experience working at an agency and what skill sets you need 
um, because I think so many people want to work at a marketing agency, but I love just a little behind the scenes of your experience of what you learned in that environment. Um, in agency environment, I guess they're, um, they're really fast moving environments. There's so much going on. There's so much money at stake in agencies when you're working with really big clients that you really have to be in many ways at the forefront of everything that's going on in your industry um, and willing and able to, to work hard for a long time. The hours are longer. Um, you are pushed to do more, uh, but it sometimes means you get to work on the coolest projects because of it. You know, instead of working for one company all the time, going in peaks and troughs of work, you're essentially consistently working for everybody and all the great things. So there are some agencies right now that work on women's football and women's rugby. We'll be doing the Euros now and then we'll be doing the Women's Rugby World Cup a couple of months later. So there's some really there's some really fab opportunities and agencies to learn. For me, it was definitely better when I was younger. I have a lot more flexibility now and freedom now. Um by far you learn the most uh, and you can really get stuck into that kind of thing um, you need to be very organized that's one thing I did learn um, very very organized in what way organized is it like time management or just projects bit, yeah a bit of everything to be honest with you you need you need to be able to rain you need to be able to um, retain as much information as possible about everything you're working on all of the time so if you're not organized um, it is harder to find that information. It is harder to be like completely ready all of the time with what you need to do and where you need to be and all that kind of stuff. So um, I would say organization, emails, time management, project management, all of that kind of stuff. You're going to learn it harder and faster in agency, but you'll be better for it um, when when you go off and do whatever else you want to do when, when, you, when you're done. So um, agency, I think you'll learn the most in an agency. I don't want to give the state the obvious question, but I think it's important for listeners who haven't put the toe in the water, reflecting now, how much did you benefit of putting yourself, like you said, get your hands dirty effect, like learn on the job in a way. Like oh, how vital is that? Because I don't think you can learn that from a textbook. That's my point. I want to emphasize from this side of the conversation. So. No, you can't. Um, I have huge questions about the benefits of um, university now. I went for the lifestyle of not having to grow up um, and not having to get a job. I did. I'm honest about it. I had a great time at uni. I did learn a lot, um, but I did learn a lot from textbooks. Uh, I did a placement year, which is probably where I learned the most. Um, I was in a job for a year doing it. And 100%, when I go back to my final year, you could tell the difference between the students who had gone on placement year and returned to, to, to university and those who hadn't. It's a totally different way of life. and. Um, I just think with the cost now, realistically, what you can learn in a job over those three years, not getting yourself into, well, I guess it's 40, 50 grand worth of debt these days. Um, you, could you be better off, like not going to uni for this kind of job? If you're talking about solicitors, lawyers, doctors, all that kind of stuff, totally different, totally, totally different kettle of fish. You need to go to the university to be a doctor, um, first and foremost. But if you're going to look at, um, sports agencies management um, production anything like that I would say that are you better off getting an entry-level job and working your way through what you want to do and where you want to be because a year in a job will tell you what you don't want to do more than it will tell you what you do want to do and then you'll adjust and go and find something else you think you want to do spend a couple of years doing that and go I actually don't really want to do this 
and you'll slowly work out where you want to be look if you wake up tomorrow and you know who you want to be and where you want to be it's a punishment if you know what you want to do your punishment is to do it I think there's something very wonderful about not quite knowing what's coming and getting to reinvent every day I don't think my parents would agree with me but I would I would question the especially now the necessity of university over just going and doing it but if you're like me and didn't want to grow up yet then I don't blame you don't bother just go to uni and have a great time and get a degree whilst doing it admittedly yeah of course I think um the reason I'm sharing this from a marketing standpoint is there's so much more tools out there you can create literally with your mobile phone on your fingertips probably when I started my podcast show it was a lot harder of the process but now yeah and, and I want to touch on this because you start we got connected because you shared a great tip on Twitter with your uh, experience doing your own podcast show and just for the listeners living listening in like from a marketing standpoint what like this isn't just podcasts about any content creation like how has content creation supported your marketing skills like traditional marketing skills let's say with your documentary, but just share a bit of that snippet of your podcast journey and the benefits. Yeah, sure. There was, I will say that what I do now, I know the basics of the decisions I make are from what I learned at uni. So the basic understanding of consumer behavior and, and of marketing principles, I do use that like retained information. Um, so I'm not knocking the textbook part, there are some basic understandings of, of, of things you do really, really need, but I would suggest maybe do it alongside a full-time job rather than the other way around. Um, look, the content creation side, I think that was one of the fastest ways I learned um, was doing it for myself and not doing it for a business. Um, you're possibly a little bit more emotionally invested or I certainly was more emotionally invested in it. The reason I started my podcast was I worked originally in the uh, recruitment marketing industry. So I worked for a recruitment company and I did their marketing and then went into agency and did the recruitment marketing for businesses instead. So similar, but different. And the difference really doesn't matter unless you're really in the industry. Um, whilst I was doing it, I realized how few people in the industry I was connected to and I knew and that it would take me 20 years to learn everything from them over everything that they'd learned or I could go to each one of them and ask them the questions and if I wanted that information I'm sure there's somebody else who wanted it too so I thought like well people are starting to make podcasts they're talking about it but it was like 2018 I think and they were saying oh podcasts will be a billion dollar industry next year now it's hundreds of billions but at the time it was really on the kind of edge of and no one was really doing it and everyone still wasn't really sure I was like well even though I have no time because I work in an agency, I'm going to do this anyway. I, w I want to try and do this. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but I gave it a go. And um, yeah, I just started reaching out to people, built a bit of a, a brand on Canva, really quick way of doing it. Uh, so much faster than building from scratch. Everything's pre-made for you. And um, just started Googling the, the highest profile names in the industry in London that I could find. Um, seem like the best place to start. They may, they'll say yes or no. If they say no, nothing's changed. They say yes, everything changes. So that was kind of my approach, really. And uh, my first guest was the marketing director um, of Randstad, which is one of the biggest recruitment companies in the world. So that was a fab place to start. And uh, that was kind of the journey. I just I spent so much more time very slowly developing how I would then market it 
So I was using my own profile first and foremost, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, all my own accounts, uh, slowly developed its own accounts over time developed the kind of snippets that I would use so before they were just audio with a picture then over time they became the video clips when I got a bit more confident learned how to do that editing you know all of this kind of stuff um I edited the first maybe 10 or 15 episodes then I outsourced the editing of the actual audio all that kind of stuff um and I probably learned more through that process than I had done in years doing other things um because it was so much more important to me you know, the, I don't want to, I don't want to say the likes, the likes counted more, but the likes counted more because of the reach and impressions that would give. Um, and then the weight that would come with that. So that was really how it all developed. I think it was definitely one of the, the I, I did it for about 18 months. Um, and it was the fastest growing podcast of its kind in the industry. So it was definitely worth it. It's definitely a great um, it's a great experience and then I wanted to move into sport so that's when I kind of wrapped it all up and was like right this is served it's time for me um, I'll go and do the next thing that I want to do just reflecting I love the whole process by the way because it was like reminding me when I just started back in 2016 but from a process standpoint for a listener going okay an 18 month period is that probably like a good time period to do like a smallish project I'd call that a medium timeline but what I love about 18 months is you learn a heck of a lot but you can as you say, close the chapter if there's other opportunities. I think content creation in Myers is always ongoing with our personal brand, but with a project like a podcast YouTube channel, was 18 months reflecting a, a good time period? I think so. I never, yeah, I never really gave myself a set time period for it. I, I wanted to do it for at least a year. I felt like anything less than that, I was kind of giving up too soon. Um, after 18 months I kind of I knew that I wanted to leave the industry so that felt like a natural time to wrap up it wouldn't have made sense to do them both it was um but it's probably the longest project I've ever worked on realistically without realizing so again I didn't set myself that that time period I didn't say I had to do this I didn't say I had to record once a week but I really wanted to push myself to to try to at least do one a week or um one a week for the first three months a little bit of a break go again that kind of thing and and that's how I learned about what was best what time frames work best for me how many I could possibly manage to do in a certain time frame would series be better so release 10 at once and all these little different things um and that was definitely the most interesting thing about it I would say 18 months is like you say a really good time period for a project um I think it that nicely led me into no woman no try and that took probably again about 18 months so it didn't feel like another really how long this could take forever I just knew that I could be patient um and I think that definitely helps because before you work on projects that might last three or four months um and you're kind of used to that cycle where you might have any major project will last three or four months other things last a couple of weeks um so if you can work on something for 18 months to two years and and care about it for the entire time you're involved in it then um I think there's some, some real patience you learn in that and you you tend to get the most out of the projects that last that long absolutely and just finally before we talk about documentary but I just want the listeners to take even more notes from the 18 months how much did you learn about the importance of your personal brand creating content creation because I always say students content creation is a great way to build your brand you may get no likes at the beginning no engagement in the beginning but over time with your own consistency your brand changed mine has with this podcast show so I'm just I would just love that emphasis even with the 18 month period did you see how your content was leveraging your personal brand on Twitter LinkedIn 
so on and so forth, because I think that's an important credibility tool when creating content. It was a big part of um, growing content as a personal brand. Was it, I think the numbers are that personal brands have 10 times the reach of company brands. So realistically, if you're going to grow something like that from scratch, you need to be using your own personal brand and leverage above and beyond. You do its own sort of Twitter or, or Instagram page or, or TikTok page or whatever it may be. Um, you inherently are the reason people return your personality is the reason people return to your podcast and your content not necessarily the content itself and that's I think what people maybe forget it's they're so focused on saying what they're going to say and not thinking about the person on the receiving end why would they listen so you might think you have a great story to tell but is that because your ego thinks it's a good story to tell or is that because somebody else genuinely wants to listen to that story so I, I kind of say this a lot about films. If you want to make something, whether it's a minute long or an hour long, it doesn't matter. If you want to make something, why is it important to the listener? If I want to tell a story, a rugby story, what is it that somebody doesn't, if somebody doesn't like rugby, what will make them come and watch that? And it's not because it's just a generic rugby story where somebody played a game of rugby and won or lost. It's because they'll come for the personalities and they'll stay for the story. And I think that's what people tend to forget, first and foremost. What anything you create, doesn't matter how long it is, doesn't matter if it's a photo, doesn't matter if it's a video, doesn't matter whatever you're making, you need to think about the person receiving it, not about yourself making it. What does the person watching or listening want from this? Not do, what do you want from it? And then work backwards from there. Once you've got the, the listener, you can then worry about yourself. And you and it can be about you. And that's fine if it's about you. That's not an issue. But just think about why the other person is going to stay and listen to you. I think that's a very, it's a sorely missed piece of creating content, which is why a lot of content is so uninteresting. I hope people take notes because you're spot on. Whenever I get a guest on a show, it's not about Ed Baz, it's about the listeners. So again, I hope people are taking notes. Now I want to trail into this documentary. Could you just share the story of how it got created? Um, because I find it fascinating and yeah, I just would love to hear this transition from let's say podcast to then doing a full on documentary, which is on Amazon. So I'm going to give you the mic, Victoria. It's um, it is a funny journey because I never set out for any of it to happen like that. So first and foremost, I say it was a project of passion and in my heart, I knew it was right, but I didn't, I certainly didn't know this is where we would end up when we set out. So, um, the, the short version of it is that No Woman No Try uh, was an idea off the back of the social media movement, hashtag movement that happened in the summer of 2020. Um, it's a hashtag I created and a movement I created that was um, I am enough. So that was the phrase that we used. And that was launched off the back of a kit maker. So Canterbury, for anybody who knows sort of rugby kit makers, Canterbury launched the, the Irish international kit that summer. They used the male Irish athletes to model the kit and then marketing campaigns had all the, the players on them. The women's kit, they superimposed the shirt onto female models and they took away the opportunity for, well, they, they did a lot of things wrong by doing that, but whole, inherently they took away the opportunity for female athletes to be recognized for what they do and what they've achieved. Um, and they gave it to the men, but they didn't give it to the women. I think that was really the clear point in all this and that female athletes are overlooked they're not as important as we don't really need to use them and all that kind of thing. And they, 
they said it was for COVID and that the shoot was going to happen later. But the point is, they didn't use them. We won't won't go into the into the kind of intricacies of it. But off the back of that, female players in England had posted on Twitter just about it, like really missed opportunity here, and it kind of created this conversation you find in the dregs of Twitter, where people started to say, well, female athletes aren't good looking enough or women's rugby is rubbish. So why would they use them? And essentially telling female athletes, regardless of even if they play for their country, based on some random man on Twitter's opinion, they're not good enough to exist. And it reminded me of how I felt when I was younger. And I was a tomboy as a kid and I loved playing sport, but I never really felt like I, I should. I felt like it didn't fit me into the kind of stereotypical female space and that, um, I guess I felt a bit bullied for it in a way when I I really enjoyed it. So just reminded me of that. And I thought now you've got kids on Twitter that are like 13 years old. If they see that, will they not pick up a rugby ball or football or play cricket or play tennis or whatever it may be? Because they think they're not supposed to because they see this kind of message. So how do we put the opposite on Twitter and how do we put the opposite on social media and empower more women to find validation from themselves, not from others online? And that's really what that hashtag was about, is about telling yourself I'm enough. And when you do that and tell yourself in the mirror, no one else can get in the way. No troll on Twitter, no bully at school, no peer, no colleague. No one can no one can stop you giving that self-validation. So that was really how that began. And then the movement was amazing. It went all over the world. Thousands of people got involved. Athletes from grassroots to international sport all got involved. Um and even my friends that don't play sport, they, when I told them about it, they understood. So many women I know that don't feel welcome at work or in boardrooms. And it was a very translatable message, I suppose. Um, and off the back of that, I thought, well, look at all these women that have been empowered on social media. They're posting these photos of themselves, whether they were dressed up or covered in mud, playing rugby, doing whatever they wanted. They got to choose what that meant to them. And that felt really important. But on the flip side of that, you're talking into an echo chamber on social media of people who already agree with you. So how do you make change? How do you make real change? And that's really how the, the film came about. It's like, how do I create a vehicle for this message that other people who don't have our lived experiences will see, hopefully come for the first five minutes to see what it's about and stay for the story once they get there and the people and the characters once they get there. And that... Um, and that was it. I was scared, staring at my blank television. I was off. I was thinking, well, if I could get my other half to watch something on TV, other women might be able to do the same. And all you need is a daughter, a wife, a mother, a sister, a friend to tell somebody in a position of power, a position of privilege to watch this. They watch it. Then they might make a slightly better decision tomorrow than they would have done yesterday. And that for me was progress. So that's kind of how the idea came about. I found some guys with a camera who also believed this story. Um, and so they were willing to do what they could to help. And, uh, and off we went, really. And that was December 2020. Um, and No Woman, No Try became available on Amazon on the 25th of March, 2022. And just, yeah, just give some background of it. You've got people like Ugo Monia, you know, Harlequin's legend, British Lions legend, and you know, in bracket, like a male ally who loves to just put things on perspective, even on BT when he commentates, which I love. And then you've got somebody who I know is a huge rugby fan is Sue Ansis, who's part of Fearless Women. Like, could you share like 
having the right people with these projects who are trailblazers in their own identity? Because the one thing I want you to also touch on, which, you know, we won't go into depth of the, the, the shirt incident, should we say, but I think the thing that hit home the message is the problem, should we say, is labeling people. And that was one thing I think I try and get rid of my personal dictionary is like, get rid of the label. Like the only label I talk about is on my shirt and that's it. Like, other than that, I think labeling is the reason that discourages people to play, not play sport or make a decision. So I would love you just to talk about not, you know, getting rid of labeling as a society within sport and just let people just be themselves to play. And then talk about Sue and Uga, who I know are just doing great work behind the scenes as well. I'll say that just about Canterbury, they, well, during the I'm Enough movement, they came out and supported it. They pledged to make change to be better and they stated what they would do different in the future and they have stuck to it. So Canterbury aren't the first brand to do this. And I I, I, I hardly believe they won't be the last one either. But only a couple of months ago, I'm now a Canterbury ambassador. That, you know, that's progress from change from what we've done. I now work with them on a, on a daily, weekly basis to help make better decisions um with them and I think that's an incredible that shows how much progress they've made as a brand they're willing to hold their hands up and say we we got it wrong but we don't want to do it again so this is what we're going to do in the future um Zayn Abalima who's also in there when they try is also um an ambassador for Canterbury so they've been uh, a fantastic example of how to get getting it wrong right essentially because um, many brands would have just like hidden away and just ignored it. In terms of like character choices and like you say, labeling in sport and I'd say stereotypes in sport, having someone like Shauna in the film was fantastic because she very much stands against being put in a box and being labeled. Um, she has an extremely iconic haircut, which makes a very, uh, it means she stands out on the pitch and she stands out in the poster. You know, it's her. And I think, what she does as a person to stand up and she talks about it on social media all the time. I don't like to be labeled. I love my body. It doesn't have to be um, stereotypically model skinny to be good because I'm a rugby player. I need to be strong. I need to be bigger than other people. And that's a good thing. And I love my body for that, for what it can do. So I think she first and foremost was really important for that narrative um, and to be proud of who she is for what she can achieve not for what society tells us she needs to look like. And even just her hair, for example, is a really big part of that. Following that, you've got people like Steph Evans, who uh, created a business in rugby because she found a problem in women's kit. There's so most women's teams play in men's kit. There isn't a lot of women's kit available or, or readily available. So she went off and made a brand specifically to create women's rugby kit for women made by women. It's really simple. Sounds really simple. Why has it not been done sooner, right? Um, so Rugget is a really good brand and a really good example for me anyway. I felt like a, a role model for other women to see a woman finding a problem and making the solution and not waiting for other people to do it for them. Um, Zain Abalima, she has pledged to hopefully become the first Muslim woman to play for England rugby which is amazing and it's a huge thing to step out and do um she's on that path at the moment she's on that journey she's a couple of years in training more slowly moving up the um the leagues and rugby to play which is fantastic um and she I know that I can't inspire every type of woman to play rugby but I can give a platform to others to do that so that's really what it was all about, bringing as many different people from the game in as possible to help inspire others. And Ugo does exactly the same. You know, he's a 
he's a world-renowned voice in rugby. He's a male voice who stands up and says, I support women's game and this is how it can be done by other men. And because he's a man from the game, from the men's game, like you said, he played for Harlequins, he played for England, he played for the British and Irish Lions. Other men will listen. And that's realistically like how we make change. We bring different voices in and p- different people listen to different voices. Um, I like to say Sue. She knows a lot from so many different sports and the progress of the different sports in England. We could learn so much from her insight into football, cricket, all that kind of stuff. So um, it was really important to get the right people. And uh, I feel like we hit the jackpot, to be honest. I bet. I just want you to take a step back now from this documentary. And you've mentioned it already. But how does it improve the business of sport? Because like you said, it, everything we've talked about creates new opportunity, which means new business opportunity with regards to, like you said, the women clothing kit just for women, that's mm. opened up new segments. And I think sometimes we we always, I think changing the narratives is vital, but I think where yeah. it's exciting for brands, it's like, actually, we've got a new market. We've got a new opportunity, like reflecting from the hard work you've done, how has it changed the perspective of business moving forward in rugby, not just the awareness? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And the reason I say that is, before um before Steph and Rugget and even since then you have many brands or, or many people that will argue there isn't a market for women's sport merchandise or whatever it may be or clothing because there aren't enough women that play sport that's not technically true but if you've never sold something to a market how can it ever be big enough for you to buy anything because you'll never have data to prove it so Steph has gone out and said well you brand x believe that you don't need to make women's rugby kit because there isn't a market for it well i'll go and make a market for it by selling it in the first place and whether you like it or not generally that's how innovation and change has happened people say well we've always done it this way and and if that's how you run your business then fine but someone else will go and fill the gap and that was a gap um so i think it's been a really interesting and i'm sure there are people watching the progress of Ruggett to, to decide whether or not they also want to make the move. But um, I think it is interesting to see the market is there. And the same, Shauna brings the, the topic up in the film. Um, it's very difficult to get hold of women's rugby boots. So realistic, because the sizes tend to all be men's sizes, which is sort of seven, eight plus. Well, most women are probably in fours to sixes. So to get boots that fit, that you like, you probably have to wear kids' boots because those are the ones that will fit are closest to fit kids boots have less studs in them than adult boots which means they don't support your feet in the same way and all these different things um there is a market for it but it will always come back to if women and girls aren't accessing sport at a young age or dropping out sport at four times the rate of boys by the age of 14 there will be less female athletes later on to buy the products because you haven't given the tools to play the game for the last 15 years, most boys will probably come into contact with rugby at five or six years old. Most girls currently still come into contact in it about 18. So that's an enormous, that's what's 12 to 15 year age gap in skill. So when you see 18, 19 year old women playing rugby and everyone goes, oh, well, you know, my 15 year old boy or my seven year old boy is better than I go, yes, but he's also been playing longer than she has by about five years. So before you go, well, let's start comparing men's and women's sport together. No, let's co- compare their pathways. Women's football is the same at the moment with the Euros. Oh, they're rubbish. Or I don't like it. Or you don't have to like it. Nobody has to watch women's sport. Nobody has to watch men's sport either. 
but I don't like watching men's sport. I don't go onto Twitter and tell everyone how I don't go and watch men's sport. I don't need to tell people that. I don't, I don't need to tell men that they don't deserve to exist in sport. But nobody talks about the 50 years that women were banned playing football. And they were banned in 1921. And they were only allowed to play again in the 1970s. Women were banned from playing football. It was illegal for women to box. They were deemed too emotionally unstable to be boxers. So there's lots more reasoning behind why the progress of a women's sport could be developing more slowly than a man's sport. So rather than saying you think they're rubbish or you don't think they deserve to play, because what you're doing is you're telling another woman or girl that she doesn't deserve to play either, go and find out about why there has been slower progress of a certain sports development. And the odds are you'll find out most of the time a man in history has decided women don't deserve to do it, which is exactly what you're telling them on Twitter. So for me, that's sort of it, that's how it all fits, and it's a very roundabout way of asking you about the business of sport. Um, but that point's always quite important to me. The more the sport grows, the more business there will be, the more fans there will be, there will be more players there will be, the more money brands can make. Fans are a huge part of that. It, you currently can't easily go into a Premiership rugby club and buy a shirt with the name on the back of a female player, but you can buy the shirt with the name on the back of a male player. So we're literally cutting off fans from the sport. Until you make one accessible, you, you need to make the other accessible. And it feels pretty simple because all our names are spelt with the same letters. It always helps. You don't have to buy a second alphabet. Um, so there's just little things like that where that is progress. That is a market. That is an audience. That is a product to sell. Um, but for some reason, we seem to overlook it. Um, and I, I'm yet to work out why it's a bad business decision, realistically. You have an opportunity. Every entrepreneur or every businessman or woman will tell you, will stand there and tell you that you're better off having more than one product in case one declines or, or stops being viable. So if you've got man's sport and it's doing really, really well, why wouldn't you also have women's sport? So if there's a decline in men's sport for a couple of years, you still have a second product. Or if there's a decline in women's sport for a couple of years, you still have a second product. But for some reason, when it comes to sport or when it comes to women, as soon as you put the word female or woman on the sport, the business decision becomes more difficult. And I would say that is when you boil it down to sexism, mm. not or to business. As well. Another thing I want to touch on as well, which is so relevant, um, is, and, and I've been retweeting as much as I can, with your sign language uh, content, <laughs> which relates to a rugby theme yeah. to it which is all about which I love about it not all disabilities are visible could you just share the inspiration about that and by the way this podcast everybody, is all about content creation and how you can use it effectively so I'm not going to give that obvious question but throughout this we've had that theme behind the scenes if people weren't sure but with this little project you did on Twitter I'd love what was the inspiration behind it and yeah I love that a lot please so July is disability pride month and I actually didn't know that until not very long ago. Um, and I am partially deaf in both ears, something I was born with. I don't really talk about it very much, never really felt the need to, never really wanted to. Um, I should wear hearing aids, but I don't yet. Personal choice. And I guess when I learned that, I guess I know, when I learned that July was Disability Pride Month, I felt that there was probably more I could do. Um, to also find the pride for myself in it. And I think there's, a, I, like I said, I, I don't really talk about it. It's just, I don't really want to. Um, and I think that's some fear of maybe judgment or being different again. And just 
because sometimes you just don't want another thing on your shoulders so I kind of hid from it for a long time and then it was kind of a way to combine both rugby and disability pride month so it felt like it was a natural fit for my personality and the content I, I put online as well um, and a great way to just learn a bit more about the sport for me um, so yeah that was really how that came about and I am a few days behind I have to admit it was my 30th birthday last week so I got really distracted by that um, but I was just learning different rugby words in sign language and British sign language and it, and it helped me also learn like my name and how to do basic things like say hi and see you tomorrow and that kind of thing and so it, it made the learning and the pride piece something fun for me and also something people might just come and watch another day you know um and that really was it so it it's been really fun and actually everybody who's mentioned it has all have all said do you know what? I'm actually really enjoying that and it's very hard to get that in content it's very hard to get people to say I actually really enjoying watching those by the way yeah can't wait for the next one um and very rarely will people come up to you and say I love every post you post about yourself on Instagram. Like it's super great. Can't wait to see the next one because nobody cares. Most of them are just, you know, for yourself or for your ego. So um, that's been really fab. And I think what I will do is try to carry it on and maybe do one a week um, and expand it out into other sports. But yeah, that's certainly, that was how that all came about. And I, it's very low entry production. It's like my phone and selfie mode in my living room with a picture of my dog on the wall behind me and I'm not hiding anything from anybody I probably should have blurred out the background but I didn't um and just it was just a fun way to raise some awareness for other people with hearing loss in sport um and how important some simple signs can be to help integrate and help include other people so yeah that was really the process and I've really enjoyed it I need to do some more that was this afternoon. That's this afternoon's thing. I've got like five of them on my phone, actually, that I need to sort out. Um, so, yeah, that was it. And I'm really enjoying it. And I think other people are too. So, Well, I am. And thank you so much for sharing that. Like, I really, I've got a big smile on my face for a couple of reasons. One, I'm grateful for just sharing, like, your experience I didn't know about. Second thing is, and I want to touch on it for the listeners, and you mentioned it a couple of times, like being purpose with your content creation, like just in general for people who, again, haven't put their turn in the water. How important is that the purpose behind the content, not just for our own ego? Because you've mentioned those phrases a few times. That's why I wanted to emphasize that point. Uh, yeah, I think it's really obvious when you create content that's for yourself and not for other people. And it all comes back to what I said earlier about no matter what you create, you've got to think about how it come, comes across to someone else. Um, not how it makes you feel first um, and I think that's the kind of the same thing the content is authentic it's real it's it is something that's close to home for me um, and my audience over the years I think will be very rugby focused so it will be relevant to them as well um, and I've not you know I've not overproduced it I could have very easily set up a camera and done it properly um, we say like properly and, and, and had it all professionally edited but it didn't feel right it was supposed to be something fun and interesting and engaging and here's just me learning something new about something about myself um, and because that's real and it's not for other people it's more it, it, it's it's more to help raise awareness for other people um, you're, you're flying a flag rather than um, getting eyeballs posting like here's yeah here's a here's a nice picture of me from the weekend which why does anybody care nobody cares 
But if you're doing something for others, it's it's very different. So I'm using my space and my following and my engagement to raise awareness for other people. And that really was all it was about. So uh, I think that comes across. And um, I think that's why it's so important to, to understand content needs to be for others, not for yourself first. Absolutely. And I just want to touch on your No Women, No Try. You're doing a tour, right? How's that all going? Give us a little snippet of how that's going. Because I bet that's a fun project. It's fantastic. Yeah. So the, the follow up to the film, I mean, it is it, hard work. I'm kind of trying to run like 20 events um, as an, and I'm not an event manager. Um, so the follow up to the film is to do a panel talk tour in rugby clubs across the country. Uh, we're going to do 20 clubs, uh, 10 before Christmas and then 10 between sort of February and April next year. And the idea is to reach the grassroots of the game, which was the purpose of the film. Uh, so it's to engage and inspire more, more women and girls in sport. So we will be, yeah, we'll be going to 20 clubs. They're almost all confirmed, just waiting for them to kind of last few. Then we'll announce, put the tickets online um, and we'll get on the road, basically. Uh, and for me, that was uh, having a film on Amazon is fantastic. It's, it's these big, shiny moments where the, the premiership clubs get involved. And um, that feels fantastic, but it sounds very like bright lights and shiny stuff. And I, the point was the films for the for real people that play sport. The uh, the international games, the top one percent of the game, same as every other sport. But how do we make sure that it stays and it belongs to the clubs and the individuals and and the players that the people that volunteer their time at the local rugby club every Sunday or every Saturday and and give up their lives for the game? So uh, it was really important to me to take it back to them and make sure that that they could engage with it uh, like everybody else has. So yeah, it's going really well, and we start at the end of August. Amazing. There'll be links in the show notes for more information when they all come out. I'll keep it updated on my social media channels as well. Out of interest, Victoria, like what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey looking back right now? Um, the family or friends that I have made is the best bit. And from a journey perspective, just to emphasize, because what you've done in a short period of time is pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, it, it is. It is. But it all all boiled down to finding um, a place to exist comfortably and safely as I am and who I am. And um, I think sport has the power to give everybody that. So that's probably been the best thing about it. And by being comfortable, by being able to be, be yourself and have a fantastic group of friends, you can go off and achieve everything because you feel confident and you, you are supported. And um, yeah, I'd say sport's given me that more than anything. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more on the confidence piece. Out of interest, I'd like to finish with an inspirational question. What three tips would you give to listeners, which they can apply straight after listening to this podcast with regards to pursuing a career in the sports industry? Like what three tips would you give to them? Um, I think it's applied to any any job. If you want to work somewhere that badly, but it, the the specific job you want isn't really maybe available, or you haven't got the right experience, find a job within that business, prove yourself once you're there, and then get the job that you want. I think that's really important. Some people try to get the specific job right away. There's a business or a brand or a, a governing body you want to work for. Just get in the door once you're there. Prove your point um get experience outside of the office whether it's launching a podcast or creating content online or writing a book or whatever's really important to you make sure you're doing something secondary to your job um for so many reasons 
some of it being if you have a bad day at work and you have something else to focus on it's not 100% of your day that's gone wrong it's just 50% you've got something else to go and do it's not ruined everything it's just you've had one bad day or something but you've got you've got better things to do um and that's all that actually that's probably one of the best pieces I, I didn't learn for a really long time is that your job cannot be a hundred percent of your life uh, it's way too overwhelming and the third do something you enjoy don't worry I, I personally would say don't worry about chasing some kind of title status career if you love what you do you will find a way to earn the money you need to earn. And then that does come from a position of privilege where I can make that choice to do something I love um, without having to worry about putting food on the table. But if you can, love it dearly. And you'll find that you'll be 10 times better at it just naturally. I think it creates that fulfillment. Like you're right with the privilege side. I think that's really a good point to emphasise. And I love, by the way, that 50% of your day, if you're having a bad day, you've got the other half to make something magical happen with the other side projects. So love that point as well. Out of interest, Victoria, how can people interact with you online? Um, follow me, Victoria H. Rush, on social media. <laughs> it's the best way. It's Sweet. the same on them all. Sweet. Well, to all the listeners listening, all Victoria's social media handles will be on my website and the link to No Women, No Try. Wow, what a wonderful conversation, Victoria. And thank you very much. Thanks, Ed. What a fantastic podcast chat with Victoria. And I have to be honest, this conversation we had together could be on so many different topics from a career standpoint. When working in the sports industry, trying to make change in the sports industry, understanding the reality of work in the sports industry. But with regards to the topic, it was all about content creation. And I hope you've now got a better understanding the power of content creation relating to your personal brand understanding that doing like an 18-month project relating to Victoria's podcast was a great way to put herself out there, but then pivot and do something else, but apply those skills with, with regards to the rugby documentary, No Women, No Try. It just shows how transferable skills can support you utilizing the power of content creation and leveraging social media. But I want to do a little bit of a reflection of the conversation too about working in certain sports particularly with regards to women's sports it does lead to opportunities and it also means you've got to fight and make things happen too victoria had to literally put herself out there to create the opportunities she is doing right now with regards to this amazon prime shall i say documentary which is just awesome for the sport a great way to promote the women's game but actually promote future change which means what I mean when I say future change I mean professionalism and to me that's what's exciting this is sports industry related now the business side changing the fan experience perspective you know if you're doing if you're studying sport management this documentary is like the spark of new opportunity but it comes down to what Victoria said it comes down to a choice it comes down to the behavior of looking at men's sport and comparing the difference of women's sport and having a choice of which one you prefer. This is important from an industry standpoint of growth. And that to me, what I, I really do admire the most from Victoria is she stuck to her guns with regards to that hashtag, with regards to that Canterbury kit launch, which then just did a positive snowball effect with regards to the documentary, which is like an educational 
resource. I've watched, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And if you haven't, there's a link in the show notes below where you can go and watch it on Amazon Prime. And then just finally, with regards to the content creation again, it's so important. And I hope you get the experience when you listen to this podcast show. It's about your audience. It's not about you. And a lot of people are creating content for their own self-gratification instead of focusing on care or how you want to influence or inspire or even entertain others. It's finding your niche that becomes very natural to you. And without a doubt, Victoria is a fantastic storyteller utilizing video. So again, if you're literally on the fence of creating content, I hope this podcast has made you now take action in creating content yourself. And can I just say, when you start, you will suck. Um, And I say that in the most politest way with regards to your confidence, because when you accept that, you will then grow within your content creation process and the type of medium you choose with the content you create too. So is it written? Is it audio like a podcast here? Or is it visual like a video relating to Instagram lives or a YouTube channel? There's so much more choice now, literally on your fingertips relating to your mobile device. And then finally, with regards to the sports career development tips right at the end, it get, does get used quite a lot. And I th- I'm so glad Victoria highlighted it this way and doing something you enjoy with the choices you have. Um, like she said, it's a privilege what she's doing. I feel like it's a privilege what I'm doing. But when you do find the purpose in what you do, the enjoyment during the work you do too, things, opportunities do open up. And honestly, the rugby documentary relating to Victoria is a great case study of that. But the difference is with Victoria, she thought bigger with regards to the messaging. She thought bigger with regards to the impact, such as doing the documentary and then backing it up with regards to a live tour so people can interact with the local rugby clubs with that engagement about the certain topics we've discussed in today's podcast about positive change to grow the women's rugby, but actually professionalise it on and off the pitch. So look, I really do hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please make sure to subscribe to the show. And last thing I want to say is apply one of your biggest takeaways. Apply it now into your sports career development and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Victoria said, no matter what you create, think about how it comes across to someone else and not how it makes you feel first. Be you be authentic and be real with your content.